So this morning, I'm not going to spend as much time in my intro, but I'm going to lay out three different people and give examples of what I'm going to be talking about so you guys can get the gist of what I'm going to be getting at today. And so the first person is, is one of my coworkers that I've been talking to about Christ and about God and the scriptures and many different things along this nature. And it started because I overheard him talking to another guy in the back room. And he was talking about how God is not real. He was saying how God endorses this and God endorses that. And he was just attacking every single thing about God. So me and him start, have started this conversation, these string of conversations. And he'll come to me and he'll say something along the lines of, I cannot believe in a God who would send people to hell. There's so many different religions. What about all the people who do not believe in him? And then he'll come to me with another thing of how hateful and how evil is God to allow all this evil to remain in this world. And we have these conversations continuously where he will say something along the lines about God, about his character, about the morality of God and how he feels towards God. The second person is myself. One of the interesting experiences is after preaching or going out and witnessing and sharing the gospel with somebody. For a lot of people who may know or may not know, but for pastors, there's something called the Monday blues. And why it's called that is because there's almost this drop down after preaching or just pouring yourself out and sharing the gospel with somebody. And a lot of times in that state, there's unbelief. There's this, this feeling of, man, what did I just miss? Did I not say what I need to say? Do I believe everything that I just said? And all these doubts begin to assail. And so then the third person is just a conversation I've had with many different people where we'll talk about something about the Lord and the normal response is, well, I don't feel like God is that. Or we'll say, God has not forsaken his words. Says, if you come to him and confess your sin, but it's, I don't feel like that. And that will play over and over with so many different things about God. It's that I don't feel like God is what his word says he is. And so the common theme between all three of those is that there's unbelief, there's distrust, there's doubts about the Lord and his character. And it comes not because of information, Because for the God that I spoke to, he understood, and we've talked very clearly. For myself, I know the truth. And for believers, I share the truth, and they hear it. So it's not information that we're all lacking. But there's a deeper-rooted problem. That problem is because unbelief is often not about information and reason. But often, it's about emotion and morality. And so as we look at the Jews today, we're going to see this play out, that Jesus gives them great responses, great information. He speaks clearly to them. He answers their questions. And they know all the facts, but yet they still will not believe. And it shows us that it is only by God that we can turn, that we can believe. And so let's jump into our text. We're going to be in John 10, starting in verse 31. So in John 10, starting in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, 
It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them God to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is outside of ourselves that you have instructed men to pen down these words that you have spoken, that we can go, we can observe, we can look, we can talk about it amongst each other. And so I pray for each and every single one of us today that your word is the standard, your word governs what is reality. That though our feelings, our emotions, or even the things that we believe are good or bad, may they be rooted in your word. Help us, Lord, to see the areas in our life where we have been believing in ourselves. We have been believing in what the world has taught us. Help us to trust your word. Help us to trust you. And we just thank you so much for all that you have done. It is in your name we pray. Amen. So a quick little recap of last week. So in last week, we were in verses 22 through 30. And in there, Jesus he enters into the temple during the time of the Feast of Dedication. And just a quick summary of what the Feast of Dedication was. It was a time during the intertestamental period during the, between God's last speaking and then in Matthew. And during this time, the Maccabees retook the temple to restore worship. And during this time, they also found some oil that was not contaminated. And so they used this oil to light the candles, and it lasted for just enough time for them to have more, where we get the holiday Hanukkah. So it's this time that Jesus has come into the temple, and he has proclaimed to them that he says he is the Christ, because that's the question that they asked him. And yet, they still did not believe. And then he continues to tell them that his sheep hear his voice, that his sheep know him, and that he gives them eternal life, and he and the Father are one. And so this conversation picks up now in verse 31. And in verse 31, it says, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And so we see that word again. And if you guys remember from a couple weeks back, where we are in John 8 and verse 59, it was after he says, I am. It says, before Abraham was, I am. And they wanted to kill him then. And so we see the Jews have not let go. They have not let up. Their unbelief is continuing on. And their desire to kill Jesus is heightening. It's not 
suppressing. They're not realizing who they're speaking to, but they continuously desire to kill him. They desire to kill him after him saying that he and the Father are one. And it's sad. It's almost like a broken record with them and even Jesus' response to them. Jesus proclaims to them who he is. He tells them the way of salvation. And again and again, they do not worship, but rather desire to kill him. And so we see that as this is repeated, this is something for us to notice. That it's not by accident John is telling us and recording stories about their continual rejection. It's for us to notice that there's a problem going on in their heart. There's a problem with their unbelief. And as we see, we're going to look at it in a the next couple of verses, that they're even going to lie about their reasoning for desiring to kill him. So let's pick up again verse 32. So in 32, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? So start off with Jesus answered. These people are standing before him with accusations and hate upon their lips. They have murder in their hearts. They have stones in their hand. And he answers them. He doesn't flee. He doesn't run away. He doesn't shy away from what he said. He answers them. And we know why he did is because, as he continued has been saying, his hour has not yet come. And so we see in Jesus this confidence in the Father's plan, that nothing can happen to him outside of what the Father has already determined, and that he trusts the Father, and he knows it is not his time to die. And so he stands before them with confidence. He stands before his accusers with mercy. And honestly, as I saw this, especially this week for myself, I realized how far away I am from this. I saw just how merciful Jesus was not to just come back at them and say, who are you talking to? Are you really going to try to kill me or accuse them? But he answers them gently. He responds to them in grace. And that's an example for us to see in Jesus. As we see his example of how to respond to those who accuse. Though many of us probably will not have anybody trying to stone us to death. But we will be offended. We will be our character will be assaulted. And we must see this example of Christ, that how he dealt with that, and what a beautiful picture to see our Savior in this way. So the second thing to look at when it comes to his response is the humility of Christ. So you see here in verse 32, he says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. He could have taken credit for all of them, He could have said, look how great I've been. And just to bring you back to some of the works that he did, he turned water into wine. He healed the official's son. He healed the disabled man. He fed over 5,000 people. And he healed a blind man. He did these amazing works that anybody would be like, hey, look, look what I've done. That would be the natural man's responses. Look at all the good things I've done. How can you say that I'm something? But Jesus still turns and says, it is the Father who has done these works. He affirms the Father in his works, and that is another example for us. It's when God uses us to do mighty and amazing things that we point to him still. Say, it is only because of him. This is he, he has worked this in us that we may be able to do 
And so we see two things with the tone of Jesus' response. Of humility and confidence in the Father's plan. And he sets a beautiful example of what we should be like, of what we should pursue, of what we should be growing into as believers. And before we go on to verse 33, I want to highlight one more thing in this in verse 32 is the word good. And Tim touched on it a couple, actually a couple weeks ago in the Good Shepherd, about this word kalos. And this word is more than how we would use it in our normal day when somebody asks us, how are we doing? We just say good. Just kind of, everything is fine, everything is easy, it's good. But it's a deeper sense with this word of, it's a, speaking of even morality, it's something that is praiseworthy, noble, honorable. And so when Jesus is describing his works, he's not just, he's ascribing morality to them. He's saying they are good. Because even as you look at his works, him healing the blind man, it was to care for him and those who would see it. Him feeding of the 5,000. And this is what makes the Jews claim and their attack upon him just look so crazy. Because I'll use an example of our, in our time. If somebody were to walk into a hospital and just begin to heal multiple people in there, and somebody would come behind and say, hey, we're going to kill you because you healed them. It would seem crazy because it's like, this is taking care of people. These works are not just for him to be boasted up, but they're actually caring for those. And so we see how just ridiculous the Jews' claim against Jesus is. So let's pick up now verse 33. So in verse 33, the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And so the reason why I said that this was their stated reason, why I said that this is not their real reason, is because, which we'll see in a couple weeks, in chapter 11, after Jesus raises Lazarus and the Jews come together and they explain why they want to kill Jesus, because they know that people are going to believe in him and they are fearing the Romans. They are fearing that because of Jesus, that the Romans were going to come in and take over and destroy the nation because of Jesus. And so we see even their claim of blasphemy is not supported. That is a false claim. That is genuinely because they hate him. And it reminds us in 1 John, where John is explaining the relationship between Cain and Abel. And he calls, he tells us not to be like Cain. And he says that Cain desired to eat, kill his brother because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And so we see here with the Jews, their claim against Jesus is false. That is, they're saying on our basis of morality, we believe you should be stoned. We believe you should be killed because of what you're saying and what you are doing. And if they were true, if they were right, which we're going to look at in Leviticus, that there was a stance for those who committed blasphemy that they should be stoned. So I'm going to turn there. You don't have to turn there unless you like to. It'll be in Leviticus 24, verse 16. I'm going to read it about this claim of blasphemy. So Leviticus 24, and I encourage you, if you like to later, to read from verses 10 through 16, but we're going to just focus on 16 for right now. So in verse 16, it reads, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. 
the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall he be put to death. And so for this term of blasphemy, it's simply to speak with disdain, dishonesty, or irreverence about God or his name. And we would think, why his name? What does his name have to do with him? And for us, as we get to read the Old Testament, many times we'll see either God or the Lord or the Lord in capital letters. But there's many names or titles for God, and these titles gave us something about his character. And so to blaspheme against his name was to assault his character. It wasn't just a simple, oh, just God of some oblivious God, but specifically the name Yahweh or Elohim. They were to, they were assaulting his character, so to blaspheme, they were to be put to death. And this is something hard for us to grasp in our culture because we don't live in a shame and honor culture. But there are cultures where this type of thing, people will even kill themselves because of bringing dishonor upon their families' names. And it's a hard thing for us to wrestle, but as we see, God has good reason for this. Because as you'll see continuously throughout the Old Testament, that as people start to speak evil of God, start to lead in different directions, it wasn't just simple words. It was hearts that were leading men and women and people away from the Lord. So it was rooted in these words, but it led away. And so God set an example in his law. And so the Jews, that was their case, was Jesus was blaspheming the name by making himself God. They recognized what his claims were. But the irony of the entire situation is, as they accused him of blasphemy, they themselves were committing blasphemy. Because as Jesus keeps saying to them, the works that I'm doing are from the Father. The words that I speak are from, from the Father. And as they're accusing him of blaspheming the Father, they're blaspheming the Father themselves by calling Jesus a blasphemer. What an irony of this situation. And they're unrighteous zealousness for the Lord as they're trying to show it. They were actually going against God. And like a broken record, Jesus is accused by the Jews and he responds with mercy, which we're going to see in the next couple of verses. So, before I read verses 34 through 39, I understand that these verses are difficult. And a lot of times for people, these are, or people have used these to begin all kinds of different heresies. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you my summary of these verses, and then we're going to walk back through them, and I'm going to show you how I came to this conclusion. So the first thing that I'm going to do is explain what is Jesus doing here. And he's using an argument style of from the lesser to the greater. I'm going to show you an example in scripture of where this is used also so we can get an idea of what Jesus is doing here. So turn with me to Hebrews. Actually, Matthew, let's go to Matthew first. Matthew 7, verse 11. So Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. It says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven good, good, give good things to those who ask him? And the argument from lesser to greater is that how much more? 
So Jesus is speaking to them, gives them an example of, you who are evil know how to do this. How much more so God who is righteous and good and loving can do this? And so it's taking something from a lesser degree or lesser quantity or lesser, making a point and showing how, how much greater it will be in another side. And this is the argument that Jesus is using as he uses the example of God calling others God. And he says, if they can be able to hear this, if they can be able to be called gods, how much more so the Son of God? So my summary is this. In the law, which is just another name for scripture, there are people who are called gods, who little g, who are not God, big G. You being a faithful Jew, accept this passage as the infallible word of God, which cannot fail, right? So, if those who are mere men can be called gods, why do you say that the one who existed before he came and the father consecrated for the very purposes that I am fulfilling, that it is blasphemy to be called the son of God? They merely received the word of God. I am the word of God. They were unjust and did not care for the people I have cared for and healed those who were broken. Their authority was limited to an area. My authority is over the whole world. Why then do you find fault with my words? And even if my words are hard for you to hear, haven't your eyes seen the good works I have done? Do they not testify that my words are true? And that's just a brief a summary of what I believe Jesus is getting at here in these next couple of verses between 34 to 39. So we're going to read it, and I'm going to walk back through and show you how did I come to that conclusion. So read with me, starting back in verse 34. So in verse, verse 34, we pick up. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him, whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So we'll start walking back through it. So in verse 34, when he uses the law, it's just a, a general reference for scripture. It's another word for scripture because the citation that he's coming from is Psalm 82. And I know in the formal sense, we will speak of the first five books as law, but it's a word for all of scripture. And so Jesus starts off by establishing, he says, your law. To establish that the Jews, at least in word, acknowledge that they submit to the scriptures. So he's showing this is what you believe. This is what you acknowledge to be God's word. And in there, he cites from Psalm 82, which we're going to turn to together now, where he says, I said you are God's. And let's look at Psalm 82 of where this citation comes from. So Psalm 82, starting in verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. 
Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundation of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. And so this is the passage that Jesus is citing. And on the surface, it would look like, is he saying there's other gods? Is there multiple gods? But as I said from when I was talking about God's name, that we see the word God, but there is a, a Hebrew word underneath it. And the name that is underneath that is Elohim. It's actually the very first name that we see mentioned of God in Genesis 1. And this word Elohim is to describe a supreme ruler, power, and authority. And so when God is calling them little or G, gods with the little g, what he's getting at is these are rulers. They have authority that he has invested in them. And so this word of gods is that they are rulers and authorities in Israel. Not that they are divine beings. Not that they are superhuman. And so Jesus takes this and says, the Father has said, you are God's little g. What is the problem with me using the same exact word? Why is it problematic for Christ to use this word? They accepted this, and that's why he starts off with showing them, this is your law that you believe. This is what you say is the word of God. So we're going to continue on to see more of in the, Jesus' response to them. So verse 35. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken. And this aspect of word of God came. We're going to see Jesus contrast himself to this. And it sets up a distance between the word of God coming to them. That as the rulers of Israel, many times the prophets would come and proclaim the word of God to them. And it set up this almost distance between them and God, which is contrary to what it is between Jesus, as he sets this example. And so he says, if you can say this to the, who the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken. And this phrasing of scripture cannot be broken is, is not usual because it doesn't happen any other time with, in reference to scripture. But what it basically means is cannot be loose. It cannot be broken up. It cannot be destroyed. Jesus is simply saying that the word of God cannot fail. The word of God is true. And all these things the Jews would say, yes, we affirm that. We believe that. We believe that scripture cannot be broken. And he uses this to help them to see, if you trust it here, why are you having such a hard time to trust it with me? If you affirm this as true, why can you not hear my words? I also want to take a time to talk about this passage in the sense of how this can be problematic for believers and those who are non-believers in the sense of this. There's a picking and choosing that Jesus is getting at with the Jews. How on one end, they affirm the law that, hey, he needs to be stoned because he's blaspheming. But he's showing, what about this passage? Have you considered this about people being called gods and the son of God? And there's danger in that because all kinds of heresies have come from this. Where I've actually heard a member 
a buddy of mine where he was explaining to me about this passage and he was like, you're a God because of what this passage said. So he took it out of context. He broke scripture apart to use it for his benefit. And that's also happens with us as believers where we'll take some aspect of scripture and say, all right, this is what I believe because this part says it. Either we'll say God is all love because it's the Bible says that God is love. Therefore, how can there be wrath? How can there be justice? Or we'll take another aspect and say, God calls us to be obedient, so therefore I must be legalistic. I must gird down. I must be able to fulfill the law. What about the mercy? What about the mercy that enables you to be able to be obedient? So that's the danger in here in picking and choosing what we desire about Scripture. And as Jesus said, it cannot be broken. You must see Scripture as a whole. And even as we look at pieces of Scripture to be read and understood in the context of the whole. So Jesus lays down this argument before them that they cannot pick and choose. They affirm scripture as true. And in the scriptures, it says that you are God's speaking to the rules of Israel. And then we're going to pick up in verse 36 to see more of Jesus' response. And so he says, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. So this is the greater end of the lesser to greater argument that Jesus is making. Of He's saying, the word of God came to these people. I am the word of God. The Father has consecrated me, set me apart for this purpose. And what an interesting word that he would use, consecrated. Because even the timing of this that he's given is during that feast of dedication. Where it had been a time of remembrance of the worship being truly restored back to the temple to the people of God. That they were setting apart the temple for the work of the Lord because it had been desecrated. And what an interesting that Jesus is saying that he has been consecrated to restore worship. That he has come that people may know the Father. And the Father seeking true worshipers. What an interesting phrase for Jesus to use. And then he says also, and sent into the world. And that word sent is interesting because we can pass by it of just, all right, Jesus came into the world. There's something profound in that as we stop and think about that. That the only reason for him, only way for him to be sent is that he had to have existed before. And so we see Jesus stating, I've existed before I was even on this earth. His pre-existence is stated here in this passage. And so we see our Savior who was not created, but that he has existed for all time and that he was sent to earth for this purpose that he is fulfilling now. What a beautiful thing of who our Lord is. And so as people use this passage to say that Jesus was trying to bring himself down, that he was not claiming to be God, that is not what he's saying. Because we do not exist before God allows us to be born. Christ existed before. And that's a heresy for us to say that we are babies in heaven who are being sent down to earth. That is not the truth. Scripture does not say that. Only Christ, the only begotten Son, existed before and was sent into the world. You see another contrast between Jesus and the rulers that were spoken about in Psalm 82. 
that they had authority over particular nations. Jesus is coming into the world. It's not his kingdom over the world. So there's no limit to his might and his power and the scope of what he is doing. So this argument of lesser, of these people who the word of God came, and you affirm them to be called sons of the Most High, gods. The one that the Father's consecrated and sent into the world to restore true worship, who is before time, who is existing beforehand, can he not also be called the Son of God? And so we see here also that Jesus is not saying that this makes him able to be able to say he, that he is the Son of God. This doesn't make him just because God said this about others. But he's establishing this point for the Jews to realize that the real reason that they want to kill him is not because of blasphemy. They're not trying to help God or to obey the law in this way, but that they hate him. In any way, in any reason that they can give, they will try to kill him. And that same example of Cain and Abel. And so now let's continue on. In verse 37. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father's in me and I in the Father. So Jesus continues his response. After showing them, reasoning with them, and them still not believing, he then points them to their experience. He points them to see the works that they saw. Works that they saw done. He appeals to the works to confirm what he has said. And how merciful of Jesus to do this while they're trying to kill them, to still care for them, to still call them to say, hey, I know it's hard for you to understand what I'm saying. I know in your heart you're saying that you're doing this on behalf of God. But even if you cannot hear my words, look at what I've done. Look at the works that you've seen, the miracles, the healings, the feedings. You've witnessed these things. Do they not testify of my character? So he points them to look at the works. And this reminds me of Deuteronomy and how we've been going through it and just seeing how Moses is calling them to recall back, to see the works of God before they move forward. As they get to see the amazing things that God had did of splitting the sea, of feeding them, of keeping them clothed. Remember those things. See those things so that you may trust and move forward. And that's for us as believers also. So remember the works that God has done in our life. One great example is looking at provision. How we're still here to this day when we doubt that, all right, Lord, I don't know if you're going to be able to provide. I have doubts in you. Look back and see, God has provided, and will he stop now? And that answer is no. And so we can see the experience that we've had. We can see the works of the Lord. And we can continue on trusting him, even when we struggle to believe in his word, even when we struggle to listen to him, to what his scriptures say. So what a great example Jesus is calling them to is to not, even if they're struggling to believe, struggling to believe his word, to trust in what he has done. 
And so now, bringing that all back together, going back to the, my initial statement, if you could see, come now to this conclusion. That Jesus is establishing here that they trust in the scriptures. They believe the scriptures are infallible. The scriptures say God has called men gods. Therefore, there is no claim that they can give upon Jesus a blasphemy by saying that he is the son of God. And even if you don't want to believe him, if you don't want to listen, see what he has done so that you may turn, that you may understand that he and the Father are one, that you may have life and have it abundantly and life eternal. So Jesus is helping them to get out of their own way and helping them to see the road to salvation. And as we're going to look at in the next verse, they still don't get it. So in verse 39, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So in light of everything that Jesus has said before them, in light of everything that they have witnessed themselves, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And this is honestly helpful for us to see our God speaking truth to them, and yet they still do not turn. I know many times we can feel the burden is on us to convert people, to have people to turn away from their sin. But I see Jesus gives them solid reasoning. He shows them that his works are good. He even calls them to even look at their own experiences of what they've seen, and yet they still do not believe. That's a reminder for us that it is only, only, Lord, changing their heart. And that's not to say that we should not witness, we should not proclaim the word of God. It's not to say we should not reason with people, but it's to understand that even if they do not turn, it is up to the Lord to turn their hearts. And for us not to put that burden upon ourselves. Because we see, even as Jesus has taken the time with them, they still will not believe because it wasn't about the information. They hated Jesus. They hated what he'd done. They did not want others to believe in him. So we're going to see a contrast to that as we continue on in verse 40. So first, he went away again across the Jordan to a place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. So after Jesus has left out of their grasp, he is not taken, because as we said at the beginning, that it was not his hour, so he was not going to be captured. He takes some time to go away across the Jordan. And this is a time where Jesus is preparing for the end. As we're going to see in Lazarus, one of the last signs that he gives as Jesus' ministry is beginning to come to a close, he goes back to the place where he was baptized. Where the father said, this is my son whom I am well pleased. He returns to this place to be alone with the father. And another thing that we can see as believers is sometimes returning back to those spaces, those sermons, the books, songs, and where the Lord just moved our hearts spending time there when we're about to go through a time of difficulty or in a time of difficulty. 
We're in times of seasons where it's dry, of going back to the well. And so I encourage you to do that, whether it be walks of nature and just having time alone with the Lord there. If it's a good book that you've read, to take time to go back there. It's a great sermon that you heard. It's great songs that you've heard. Just going back there, just remembering what the Lord has done for you. This even reminds me of an example that I heard from um, a pastor in Texas named Matt Chandler. And I think he's citing Edwards when he says that he, the reason he did it. And so what he would do is he would go to cemeteries and he would look for a date that was his. So he would look for somebody with the same exact birthday as his. And he would do this. It was a reminder of the grace of the Lord. It was a reminder that he was still on this earth and that he should serve the Lord with his fullest. So he would go back to this to be reminded of how good he actually had it. And it was a reminder to put everything back into perspective. So we see Jesus retreating before he begins the end of his ministry. He returns to the beginning. So now let's pick up in 41 and 42 and see as people have come to him. So in verse 41, And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. So the first thing they do is compare Jesus to John. So I'm going to have you guys turn with me to John chapter 3, verse 25 through 30 to get this example that John has set. So it's going to be on page 888 in your pew Bibles. So let's look at the example of John. So John chapter 3, verse 25 through 30. And just also, the John they're speaking of is the John, John the Baptist, not the author John of the book of John. Starting in verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John has died by the time these people are coming to Jesus. And what a beautiful thing to see the fruit of John's ministry, of ministering to his people, of saying, pointing them to Christ. He must increase and I must decrease. And so we see as they are coming to the Jesus in faith, that faith flourishes when we are willing to point to Christ. So we see this example of John, of a beautiful thing of him telling them, turn to him, look at what he has done. We see this in complete contrast to how the Jews were. Because these people did not see the signs. The Jews did. They did not believe, but the Jews did not believe, but these people did. And that is the state that we are in in this time and in this day. We don't get to see the signs of Jesus. We don't get to see the miracles that he performed. But we trust in the testimony of another. 
We trust in the testimony of John that his words are true. As he speaks of Christ and what he has done. He has been sent into the world. He was born as a babe. He grew up in complete obedience to the Father. And he was willing to die. To give himself as a sacrifice for us. And even though he died as he was hung upon that cross, the grave could not hold him. And he rose again. And what a beautiful thing. And even though we don't get to see, we did not get to see, we trust. We have faith in the testimony of another. We see this is what these people were doing. that They trusted in the testimony of John. And that is for us also. To trust beyond our emotions. Our emotions tell us not to trust the word of God. Where our emotions tell us to say, this is how I feel, I cannot believe this. This is how I feel, I must go in this direction. I'm saying, no, 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 no. If scripture says it, that is my guide. I know that's a hard and difficult thing to do at times when you're so overwhelmed with your own emotions. Or you're so overwhelmed with what you think is good or right. But for every single one of us, let us go to the word of God to see how we should believe, to see what we should practice, to see what is true. And that should be how should we measure what we are feeling or what we're thinking, or just anything in general. So we measure it according to the word of God. And what a beautiful thing to see this at the end of this passage, that there were some who did come, who didn't hear of Jesus and say, no, no, I'm not going to believe him, but trusted in that testimony. So as we come to a conclusion, I have a couple challenges, and then we're going to read one last passage. So as John did, instead of taking the acclaim of saying, do not follow after Jesus, he pointed to Christ in his ministry. So my first challenge for you is, as you go to work, as you're going about your day in the grocery stores, as you're around people, take the opportunity to share the gospel. And even if you feel like, oh, that's too much, at least point someone to Christ when they come to you. Point them to who Jesus is, at least one person. So you see this example of John. And the second thing is, take some time and meditate upon scripture, especially in times of doubt, when your heart is failing you, when you're not trusting in his word. Take some time to meditate on, God says it, so therefore it is true, even if I do not feel it. So we're going to close in John 20, verse 30 and 31. So we're going to close here because one of the beautiful things about the book of John is John tells us exactly why this book was written. He tells us what the purpose of it is. So that's the same purpose that we've gone through today and saw this interaction between Jesus and how Jesus conducted himself so that we may know him and believe in him. And so what a beautiful thing that we have this written that John tells us exactly. We don't have to question we don't have to assume, but we know the very reason why we are going through John, why John has written John, why we should trust his testimony.
So in John 20, verse 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for passages like that. As we could read at that ending that the purpose is clear. So that we may know you. You know who you truly are. And we thank you that you have revealed yourself through your word. We thank you for the example you set. That you did not respond in anger. You did not revile, Lord. You did not insult them. But you took the time to be merciful. You took the time to care for them. You took the time to even explain to them how they were wrong so that they may see rightly. How patient are you, Lord Jesus? So I pray for each and every single one of us as we go throughout the rest of our week. May we take the time to point people to you. May we take the time to speak of our Savior. We take the time to see that example of John and imitate it, Lord. And also, I pray that you may give us the strength to have trust in your word. As many of us, we go through different seasons of doubt. We go through different struggles. It just feels like we can't believe. It feels like. I pray we may know what is true far above our feelings. So we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have strengthened us and enabled us to be able to even believe in you. I just thank you for how good a God you are. And it is your name we pray. Amen.